Hey, alright. And welcome to Better Yet. I'm Tim Crisp, your host. Better Yet is a conversation about music. And our conversation this week is with Kiri Oliver of Early Riser. Early Riser released their second LP, Vocations, at the end of March. Very excited to have Kiri on today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Namdi for our intro music, Marcus Nuccio for our graphics. Each week, you can see all those on our website, betteryetpod.com. Invite you all to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Bandcamp, betteryetpodcast.bandcamp.com. Back in the saddle, Bubba's. We had to call last-minute audible last week. I got sick, but it was with good reason. Jay and I got our first dose of the vaccine. Did not feel good at all. But don't let that go misunderstood. We were both thrilled to get our shots. Hoping all of you out there are getting poked or getting your pokes scheduled. Spent a lovely evening with the Elite. It's my wrestling crew. Watching the second night of WrestleMania in our friend Scott's backyard. Still staying safe and distance but first group hangout i've had in so long a little scary but only in the months and months of building up to it once i was there together with friends felt so great what a week we had here the last time we talked though huh the best april fool's day prank since jade tree said lifetime was getting back together it was a very fun day. Heard from a lot of friends reacting to my social media posts. Uh, not as many of them followed up to say, ah, you got me, Tim. So I guess they didn't listen to the podcast, which is good to know. Sort them out from the real ones. Of course, that Chris Gethard interview was truly a joy. Chris has a real uncanny ability to know how to give an interviewer exactly what they're hoping to get, but through his filter, which is such a delightful experience. Encourage y'all to listen if you haven't already. Amidst all that excitement last week, I didn't mention that Saturday, April 3rd, was Chloe's birthday. I'm always thinking about Chloe, so in that way... The day was no different, but like all aspects of my life in the past 15 years, Chloe became a big part of this show, and I remain very lucky for all the good she brought to my world. I had a lovely time talking to my dear friends and rap boys over the weekend, well over the last weekend, on their virtual tour. We're live from Iceland. We talked about the podcast and Volcanoes and Hadley. If you missed it live, you can still watch it over at watchratboys.com forward slash archive. Check out all those episodes of the virtual tour. There's so much fun. I love that band and I'm excited for their news. This past week going on tour with Julian Baker in Europe. So cool. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast, where we've got 
some very fun audiovisual programming available to you, including my weekly top five. Been taking a lot of inspiration from the adventures of Pete and Pete and the Merge book and WrestleMania. Lately, we also have conversations with Dave Garwacki of If You Make It, Kevin Duquette of Top Shelf Records, Bob Fielma of Shinobu, Fat and Funky, a whole bunch of extras from the Life's Work podcast about Laura Stevenson's Sit Resist. I'll be dropping a little radio program tomorrow. I'll play some Sparks and some Spoon. I think my favorite Spoon song is on that program. Plus, we got a weekly contribution from our guests. We got a live Thou set over there. Playlist from Lucy Dacus and Sarah Tudson of Illuminati Hotties. Lots of demos from Anika Pyle, Mikey Erg, Sophia Verbilla of Harmony Woods. Covers, Lisa Kusami of Oceanator doing Rancid's old friend, Laura Stevenson doing Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window by Bob Dylan. And this week, we got a lovely cover coming to us from Kiri Oliver of Happy Together by the Turtles. You can sign up at $3 a month. They'll give you access to all of the bonus audio and visual content we're posting each week. If you pledge $10 a month, you get all that plus every three months. Sending out some cool merchandise. Putting this zine together. It's my first zine. I'm very excited about the way this thing looks. And with our Patreon, we split the revenue from the podcast evenly between the show, the guests, and organizations chosen by our guests. The guests are the reason you're listening to this show each week. And we pay our guests for their time. We're paying Kiri for this interview. And we're also using the conversation as a chance to send some money this week to North Brooklyn Mutual Aid. We love mutual aid here. Happy to be helping them out this week. If you'd like to support them and support the show, go to patreon.com slash Podcast. All right. My guest this week is Carrie Oliver of Early Riser. Early Riser started as a solo project before Carrie started playing with Heidi Vanderlei on cello while the two were working on the Chris Gethard show. How's that for continuity? Heidi's cello combines so perfectly with Kiri's songwriting, which is both poppy and bouncing and also introspective and uplifting. Their new album, Vocations, is the follow-up to 2017's Currents, but the first Early Riser LP to feature the band in their fully formed lineup, a four-piece featuring Nicole Nussbaum on bass and our good friend Mikey Erg on the drums. And this lineup marks a night and day difference. The songs are tighter, all four of them are singing, and there is a palpable excitement to Vocations, one that transferred to me for this here interview. Thank you for listening. Rate and subscribe. And do enjoy my conversation with Carrie Oliver.
So, let me ask you. Very exciting thing for me out in Indiana. Unable to see my, I don't, I don't get to watch him very often. And plus now Henrik's gone, yeah. and that hurts. Yeah, it does. Um, I must have gone as a kid. I definitely went as a kid uh, with my dad a couple of times. But uh, we really started going in earnest about a couple of years ago. Well, he retired, mm-hmm. and he needed something to do. Uh, so something he got really into was going to sports games. Uh, my parents live in Park Slope, so he'd go down to Barclays and always find like discount tickets for the Islanders, even though he doesn't like the Islanders, just because right. it's like something to do. And uh, he started getting like partial season tickets to the Rangers and asking if I wanted to go. So it's not like I was like actively a hockey fan or anything then. I just it was like a reason to hang out with my dad. But then because mm-hmm. we went to a bunch of games, you know, you learn who the players are, you get invested. And, uh, yeah, it's fun. I've never, like, had a team, really. So it's, it's, a, it's a fun thing. I love that that's, like, his retirement move is, well, I'm just going to start going to games now. That's fantastic. Yeah, like, he always has. But more than, like, basketball, I think. We went to a lot of basketball games growing up, like, UConn games and stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, he's just, he's around, and he needs something to, uh, to be into, and it's fun to share. UConn was that that was at the Harvard Civic Center, right? Hartford Civic Center. That was there. Well, we would go was in like New York. In a, oh, they would play in New York. Okay. We would go to like the tournaments and stuff. Nice, nice. You said you grew up in Park Slope. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what did your folks do? Uh, my dad worked in finance, like municipal bonds, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Oh, okay. So he was. Well, he would just go into Manhattan. So, do you have siblings? No. Just you? Just me. Uh, so, what was, um, what was Park Slope like growing up? It was fun. I mean, it's got all these, like, stereotypes now, and uh-huh. uh, I wouldn't say that they necessarily quite applied then, but, uh, you know, gentrification is, is a long process that, that ends, uh, you know... Mm-hmm. where not ends but has ended up where it is now um yeah i don't know it was just like family neighborhood super fun chill uh no like crazy stories or anything uh-huh and was he was he i kind of just have to ask because my dad used to commute from jersey into the city and we moved in in 99 was your dad was he working in, in manhattan uh in 2001 um yeah that's uh, that's heavy yeah um i had just gone to college like that week oh uh, wow up in connecticut so i yeah just missed it which was crazy um but yeah it's weird that i don't remember his 9-11 story he must have walked home over the bridge like everyone did Oh, was that what people were doing there? Just yeah, because they shut down the trains. Wow, wild. Yeah. So, was there music in the house when you were growing up? For sure. Um, my mom plays piano and guitar. Mm-hmm. She started me on piano when I was about eight, and uh, 
Yeah, just like my parents, they were really into classical music and like opera. I'm named after an opera singer, Kirich Kanawa. Oh, okay. Um, but then they also just had like just a bunch of random stuff, mostly on tapes. And my earliest memories of music are just like listening to their tapes in the car. So I have just like very just disjointed uh, early fandom of just like one album of different people, you know, like mm-hmm. Billy Joel and Queen and. Uh, uh, a lot of Enya for some reason, <laughs> like many big Enya records. Big at the time. <laughs> what? Big at the time. Yeah, big at the time. I still love me some Enya. Um, yeah, I I'm very fond of that. I, I wrote an essay called "The Car Tapes" for this website called Audio FM a couple of years back, which was really fun and like a, made a playlist. And uh, that's just like something that I have a lot of fondness and nostalgia about the idea of mm-hmm. you know developing your musical taste as a kid, like just kind of in a vacuum you know before you really understand the context or what's critically acclaimed or what's cool you're just like this is what I like and I think it's so important um especially for I mean for anyone but especially for people who do become musicians to have that time where you actually like just know what you like because the older I got and the more messages I got from other people sometimes it was harder to know what I like or I'd be like oh yeah I like that thing that's cool but I didn't really you Uh know like I like the purity of just like those initial things that I got really into, and some of them are weird, like uh, like live throwing copper. Uh huh. I like loved when I was like nine. I was like, I love this record, and I was, and I still do. But it's just funny to listen to it now and be like, wow, I really connected to this when I was like a child. <laughs> um. So you started playing piano when you were eight. Were you were you a fan of playing piano, or were you sort of forced into this? I was medium. I I liked it. But I made it clear pretty early that I liked it in service of learning stuff that I wanted to do. And I'm glad that my mom was kind of an advocate for that. That, you know, the teacher's like, uh, you know, here's your music theory. I did my music theory notebooks and stuff. I'm glad I had that. Like, here's your classical little exercises. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, I don't know. I I just picked what I wanted to play. So when I would do recitals, I would do like, I think I did like Whitney Houston, I I Will Always Love You. Uh, (laughs) I did... uh, like the Nutcracker, mm. uh, themes from Star Wars. <laughs> like <laughs> it was just a lot more fun for me as it is for most kids learning an instrument. If you're doing it towards learning songs that you like, and actually, I was talking to my mom about it recently, and I didn't. I don't think I knew this as a kid that at one point she pulled me out of recitals. I didn't remember that. I, I have a recollection of doing recitals, like uh-huh. a couple of them. We'd like go way deep into Brooklyn and go to this woman's house, and we'd all do our little songs and stuff. But I don't think I liked it. So my mom was telling me recently that she eventually told the teacher that I wasn't going to do recitals anymore. And I'm like, that's cool. (laughs) That's cool that she advocated for me and that she supported me, you know, learning this instrument in a way Mm -hmm. that I actually liked because I think that helped me, right? Like a a lot of kids, you know, pick up instruments and are told, you have to practice, you have to do it this way. I know so many people who quit and then they never made their way back to it in a recreational way because they're just kind of, they were stuck on like, oh, my parents were trying to get me to compete or like take Mm. it so seriously or play stuff I wasn't interested in. And then I just, I wish I still played, but then they don't. Right. And it's hard. It's hard to get back into if you stop. So when does, uh, when do you start playing guitar then? Like in high school, you know, when I was listening to more stuff that I was like, okay, if I'm going to play this, then I need to be able to. Uh, to play electric guitar. Yeah, what kind of stuff was that? Oh, uh, I remember I went to guitar uh, lessons, and I think the first 
thing I asked him to teach me was Man Overboard by Blink-182. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, kind of the usual, I guess. But um, yeah, I didn't take guitar for that long. My mom like taught me chords on acoustic and I, I took lessons for a little bit. I honestly never got super into it. I kind of wish that I did. Like I wish that I cared about playing guitar more than I do, but like what I care about is songwriting and writing lyrics and I'm just kind of one of those utilitarian guitarists mm-hmm. who like knows enough to play behind what I'm writing and then the band kind of fills in the rest. Right. So when when did you start writing songs? Um around that same time I started playing guitar, like high school, I think I was about 16, 17. I just uh yeah, just like started writing lyrics in earnest and I wasn't always even writing like the full song on guitar like I have a lot of songs uh from throughout the whole time of writing songs that I just have the lyrics for and like I wrote the melody but then didn't um actually like play or ever record it um and yeah that's just it's just something that always made sense to me as a way to kind of um just process like what was happening to me and how I felt about things. And, uh, yeah. So uh, high school, I, I feel like I learned a little bit about you from the, uh, find me for the waltz video. Um, at least the, uh, the pop-up that those were your debate trophies. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're were you a smart kid? Uh, yeah, I always did really well in school and stuff. And then where, where'd you go to college then? I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Okay. And that's in, where, where's that? That's like close to Hartford, right? middle town, like central Connecticut. Yeah. Like yeah. half an hour from Hartford. So you're far, are you far enough away from the city where you're not going to the city, back to the city often? Or are you? Yeah. Like only on breaks. So I was going to a lot of shows in Connecticut, in Massachusetts. We would drive up, whoever had a car. Um, but then like, yeah, whenever I was back in the city, then I would so what kind of like did you find like a punk community up there i did yeah like i didn't have that in high school i went to a really small private school you know same 50 kids in my grade Mm -hmm. 6 through 12 like um just no one who was into underground music really that i that i knew um and yeah so i had stuff that i liked but i didn't have anyone to share it with except like there were there were a couple like punk and emo kids that i met on the debate team from other schools and they would like tell me about some bands and stuff but it was like um once i got into wesley and they had this listserv and you could start kind of finding people mm-hmm. to connect with before you went so i kind of like found some of the punk kids met them at warp tour that summer <laughs> like immediately started hanging out with them the first week uh Cause yeah, I had like terrible roommates who were, who liked each other, but not me and were like just really, really bad to live with. So I was like never in my room, just like immediately tried to find my people and, uh, and just be like, tell me about all the bands. Um, so that was fun. Um, no, I heard mention of a, of a folk punk band that you started up there and like Defiance Ohio being the big influence. When did that? When did that start? I wouldn't say when they were the influence, but we played with oh, them. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that was in like 2003-4. I hooked up with some kids in the Connecticut scene. Like, I had no interest in being uh, like a campus band. Mm-hmm. It was that was like the time that MGMT started at my school. Yeah. So that was super weird. Like, they were the whole big thing, and I was like, I don't want to be a campus band. I want to just be in the punk scene. I want to play like basements, VFW halls, and stuff. Like, that's what I care about. So. 
Um, you know, I do my classes, like have my friends on campus, but I wasn't super involved in campus life. And I just, uh, yeah, just like kids that I met at shows or on message boards or whatever would be really nice and pick me up and drive me places because I didn't have a car. Uh, and that's, yeah, like how I met folks to, to play with. It was, we called it melodic hardcore punk at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. Um, what did you major in? Sociology. Oh, okay, cool. I got a minor in that, so it's it's oh, cool. it's come up a lot. I'm glad nice. I'm glad to be using it, you know? <laughs> it was interesting. I think that it really gave me a well rounded education about a lot of things that I didn't necessarily get in high school, just about mm-hmm. wider like social processes, race, gender, class, things like I took two classes on the prison system, which was super oh, nice. interesting. Um, just stuff like that, just to really Yeah just get like a deeper understanding of how society works and what I might want to help change. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I was, it was super interesting to me. I wish that there was some sort of like job application that could be done. Did you find any work like with that degree? Just in the nonprofit sector. Yeah. I mean, I work in, um, in communication. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. So after, after school, you moved back to Brooklyn Mm-hmm. Um, and then how do you, how did you get involved in sort of the, the like music and, and comedy scene that you end up being a part of? It took a long time. Like I moved back and was working and stuff, which was just really hard and depressing. Like I hated having an entry level job because, mm-hmm. you know, you're at college and everyone acts like you know, treats you like you're smart and then you're 22 and you get a job as like the peon in an office making copies and they don't treat you like you're smart or have anything to contribute and it's just kind of soul sucking. Um, And I didn't really have that much of a community. I wasn't like in touch with people from high school or anything. So yeah, it was hard for a few years. Like um, I didn't really have, like I would go to shows with like a couple friends or whatever. Um, but definitely wasn't part of, like, the DIY scene or anything. And uh, I started, like, doing some music journalism, which was really good. Mm. That was, like, the first thing that kind of... I had a moment of, like, if I can't get a band together and figure out how to be a part of this, like, I need to be connected somehow. So I started writing reviews for this um, San Francisco-based website called The Owl Mag. I became, like, the New York editor. And I was um, just, like, covering a ton of shows and, like... Uh, writing about like local bands records and stuff like particularly bay area bands but also new york bands and like that was really fun and that um that like connected me to music but i didn't necessarily meet people here through that Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until like i finally after all that time like scraped a band together and i think around 2010 that like as soon as you get out there and start playing shows you immediately meet like a ton of people right you play one show and then that band invites you to play again and like it kind of snowballs from there but until that happens it's just really hard you know the world of like going on craigslist playing with weird people like nothing works out like that was just a long slog um so yeah and then i guess it was more like 2011 2012 um i i'm met up with some girls who wanted to start this uh like feminist kind of punk collective and that's wow. basically where everything started for me like my current life that's where I met Heidi who plays cello in early riser and uh you know we started booking a lot of shows like feminist benefit shows yeah. at DIY venues in Brooklyn and yeah like the it feels like the whole life I have today is kind of owed to that 
just like group coming together, you know, yeah. um, like being invited to be in more bands and knowing how to book shows, getting invited to book for the Chris Gethard show, which is how I mm-hmm. got into comedy. Um, and yeah, just like meeting so many bands while booking for that show, uh, for like six years. Yeah. Wow. So we were, uh, yeah, just like. It's just crazy how you can trace kind of how one thing leads to another mm. and then you have the life you have just because of the people that you met like at, at one point, you know? Yeah. And and Brooklyn was kind of becoming very exciting around that time too. When you were when you were booking shows, were you booking like Death by Audio? Were you involved? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. so that's so cool. We did. We did a lot of our benefits with Death by Audio and like Chase Stadium mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, all those places that are gone and right. yeah it was yeah so we were uh yeah part of what felt like a really amazing moment and then like all of these venues um kind of phased out right uh, so it felt pretty rapid like it's this development especially in the area around where the audio was and um yeah that was really hard um i think it's an interesting kind of the intersection of what the Gethard show was doing like both from a musical and just from a, like what he was doing was very punk and yes, that punk. has to be like kind of a, a wild moment for you to be like, Oh wow, this is all very cohesive to the actual, like this scene and this scene, it's all part of one thing. Oh, totally. But it like, wasn't, one thing at the time and I think we really helped bring it together like you know we didn't have any knowledge of public mm-hmm. access until we started showing up at that and we were like whoa yeah this is cool this is super DIY and super punk you know Chris and the other writers would just come with this like car trunk full of props and stuff and yeah. just like go into an empty studio and make this thing happen um, and it was it was just a really magical moment where like you know bands would come on and then the word kind of spread and then bands actually wanted to come mm-hmm. on and like bigger bands uh actually wanted to come to our like far out of the way little studio late at night and play on this show and then we booked these shows called um tcgs presents where we'd like go to death by audio Mm -hmm. and chris would be hosting and or other folks from the show and we'd have bands who'd played on the show play there and that was like the first time that a lot of these comedy kids were going to a place like death Mm -hmm. by audio their first like diy punk show and there were just funny mishaps with people showing up like way early and then the venue's not even open <laughs> and like or like you get to see the look on their face when they go into the death by audio bathroom for the first right. time and and i'm just like i love this um because as you said like what chris was doing was very punk and the people had like similar uh ethics around like what was happening in comedy what was happening in music but they they weren't mixing so the fact that he had this idea to bring on um, well, he said that he started doing the booking himself by Googling, like, weirdest band in New York and then booking that <laughs> band. <laughs> and then, when he didn't have time, he brought on me and my friends, uh, Zane and Heidi, uh, to to help, like, you know, book different bands every week. But, like, yeah, I mean, credit to Chris for even having that idea. Yeah. And that just, like, I think he is basically responsible for a lot of synergy between, like, DIY music and comedy that probably that continues today. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to see, like, you know, the way it gets bigger and suddenly 
Slater Kenny's on the show, but then also you do a pilot where it's shell shag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, for the most part, we got to do what we want, which was mm-hmm. cool. You know, like once we went on the cable channels there, you know, were sometimes suggestions that would come down of like, oh, trying to book this band. But we would try and they'd be like, what's your budget? Are you flying us out? And we'd be like, we have a thousand dollars to pay you, which is like for a DIY band, amazing mm-hmm. to make a thousand dollars for a big band that lives on the West coast and they need to fly out there. That's nothing. It's not even going to cover right. their costs. So it's like, we couldn't actually book, you know, a lot of bigger artists, um, due to just the budget and limitations of the show. So, uh, I think that kind of kept it a space where, where we really still had a lot of leeway to get folks that, that we liked and that were actually pumped about being on the show. Like, I think there were a couple times we booked people who were like, what is this? But most of the time people were really big fans, you know, and they wouldn't just sit in their dressing room. They'd be like, can we come up Mm -hmm. and watch the rest of the taping when we're not playing? Like, this is so cool to be here and be a part of this. And that was what was like really gratifying about it. So did you stick through until it ended? Was it, Mm -hmm. uh, was it as difficult on your end as it was for the rest of the show? Or did you feel uh, like kind of, did you feel a little separate? Just from, it, it. Chris seemed to be just under a larger and larger weight as it went further with the, was it Fusion? Uh, True, True TV, TV at, at the end. end. Yeah. yeah, we were a little bit insulated from that. We worked kind of separately. We kind of did the booking for the whole season kind of at the beginning of it. He would just say, go for it because you had to do mm-hmm. it in advance. So once he told us that the season was renewed, we would just kind of, book everyone um and it was always separate from like even back on public access like the band booking was was never connected to like the theme of the episode we never knew what the writers Mm -hmm. were doing like we worked totally separately so we were pretty insulated from what was going on with the network but we would hear snippets of it or just see how like downtrodden chris looked that like they would be told they had to do certain things or told they had to like scrap and rewrite an entire episode in like two days um and we could definitely tell that that was getting really challenging for the writers and producers. So you mentioned, you mentioned Heidi. Um, where did you, you met her at first when you were doing the, the collective, you started booking shows together and then you, you started doing the Gethard show together. Yeah. We were also playing in a band together at the time. Which one was um, that? That's not Delta house, right? I listened to that demo. Yeah. Delta hotel. Wait, that demo's Delta on the hotel. internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, it's where? I didn't camp. think that was on the internet. What? Oh, yeah, sorry. I thought you were referring to my college band, which is why I was like, wait, that's not on the internet. <laughs> yes, Delta Hotel's demo is on the internet. That was my band from like 2010. Uh, no, that was like that first band that I mentioned that I got together before mm-hmm. I met folks. Um, Heidi and I were in a band called okay. Buddha. Um, It was like a five-piece kind of indie rock band. I played keyboard. She played cello. Um, neither of us was the front person. And... Um, so yeah, we were doing that at the same time as we were doing like the Gethard show and I was still in Delta Hotel and I was also in another band called Claire's mm-hmm. Diary with these girls who were teens from Park Slope. They were way younger than me, but they needed a uh-huh. keyboardist. So they asked me to be their keyboardist and uh, I kind of blended in. Like uh, people would think that I was uh, like <laughs> uh-huh. their age, even though I was in my like, late 20s. Um, so I was like, yeah, playing in those three bands and doing the show and that was that was insane. Like I just, it's hard, you know, like the older you get, the more you look back and you're like, I had a day job. I was doing this thing that was at like midnight on 
in like a weekday, yeah. <laughs> like playing in three bands. Like, how did I do that? <laughs> and like going to shows and yeah. That's so funny. Um, so um, Early Riser, that started as like a solo project, right? Yeah, kind of while I was doing all those, like, you know, we were always putting on different shows, like we would do stuff in our friend's living room, mm -hmm. and I think at my first Early Riser show was just like an open mic in our friend's living room, uh, and that's like, I called my solo project Early Riser, and yeah, I hated playing solo, it was really stressful, like I was really proud of myself that I did it, but like, there's this song on our first record called Wrecking Ball for a mm -hmm. Dead End that is kind of about just like... You know, no one's going to tell you to do this. Like, if you want to be a musician, you want to get out there, you got to do it. But, like, it's really scary. It's really scary to get up there by yourself and do this. Um, so I really had to, like, psych myself up. And then when our other band broke up in, like, 2014, basically the next week I was like, Heidi, do you want to play in my solo uh -huh. project? Like, want to come back to the practice space next week and just, like, throw some cello and vocal harmonies on this stuff? which I had always kind of wanted, but I just didn't have time because I was in three <laughs> bands. Uh, and and she was like, yeah, so Early Riser was born. And her cello playing yeah. is just so melodic, and she's essentially yeah. performing leads on those songs. Is that mm -hmm. what you'd pictured, or yeah? Yes. Totally. Yeah, it's weird. Like, those songs always had leads, and I think I, because I had played in the band with her and was used to playing with a string player like you know I would get up and play these songs solo but I would just sing mm -hmm. the lead like the songs on our first record the leads you hear most of them are ones that I had written and I would just uh and I would just sing like la 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 or da 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 or whatever yeah. and I would sing that part over my little four <laughs> chords and so those were like there uh and I just like was like here take a lead um and now of course it's like more collaborative in terms of her bringing in her parts and stuff but it's but it's like if there's part if there's a solo, it's like okay, here's your sixteen bars, write a solo. You know, she is like basically the lead guitarist of the band, and she writes yeah. a solo. <laughs> um, so it, and you were you were playing just the two of you. It's helpful now. You got you got a big instrument that takes a lot of focus off of you performing. Um, but the rhythm section was kind of was it always in flux or? Yeah, we just couldn't find a permanent lineup. We, like, really tried. We, you know, we played a lot of shows as a duo and uh, just tried different stuff. You know, we would get booked on, like, folk or singer-songwriter stuff, which didn't really mm -hmm. feel right. We played punk shows, which is where we felt at home, but then people would talk over us because we were the only not-full band, and we'd be like, we need to get a band so people will, like, listen to us. Um but yeah, it's just hard. You know, everyone's busy. Everyone's in bands. Mm -hmm. You have to get really lucky to find folks like just at the right time in the right place who are available. So we made, we ended up like going into the first studio and making the record uh, without having like a real lineup together. You know, a couple of our friends were like, yeah, we'll write these with you, mm -hmm. go in and record them. Um, so we did that, but it was not an ideal process, right? Because it's like these songs that we had really worked on as an acoustic duo we very quickly turned them into full band songs when in the studio. So it wasn't um, the product of a band that had been playing live, which normally, you know, you, you play stuff live a bunch before you put it down. Um, so I think you can kind of tell, you know, like especially compared to yeah. the new record where we have like our solidified lineup and we wrote it together and played that stuff live. Like it, it just makes a huge difference. And that's, that's what we always wanted. It just took a long time to get yeah, there. Yeah, totally. Vocations, there's 
all sorts of dynamic shifts. Everything is a lot more swinging. And uh, on, on Currents, yeah, it feels like these songs have been written and you got a rhythm section that's following along with the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, how did, how did you end up doing that record with uh with joel from plow united and x friends i didn't i didn't know he produced stuff um i don't know if he does a lot besides his own stuff but uh he had played on the gethard show heidi had booked plow and um they kind of struck up a friendship and he was just very supportive of us Mm -hmm. like he liked the little demos we put together and was just someone that we really trusted who was just really knowledgeable um and also just treated us like equals even though we didn't know what we were doing and that's really important um and yeah we were just like we need to go into the studio but we don't really know what we're doing we really need some kind of guidance and help pulling this together so we asked if he would produce it and that's how we ended up out at um noisy little critter in um like outside of philly oh, okay that which was an awesome yeah that's experience. in westchester right yeah, 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 and Joel and Mike are Mike Bardzik are like longtime friends, so they just kind of locked in and, and collaborated, and and Joel helped with stuff like the Nevers didn't have an intro, mm-hmm. like it just started, and he was the one who had the idea to like put the chords on the beginning and then have Heidi play in a riff, and the song would not be what it is if he hadn't suggested that. Yeah. So. Um, stuff like that was just really helpful, and 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 because you know it was our first time in the studio not ever because we recorded with other bands but like you know making our own record like it's just so overwhelming you're there with all this equipment if you're not a gearhead which i'm not Uh um you know like it just helps to have someone else there to totally to just talk to the engineer and like help make those choices about the guitar amp and all that stuff i'm just like here to play my song and i just want to make sure it sounds good but it's just it's a lot um i think the way that you write for early riser there's this open book presentation of yourself was that different from other projects or is that how you've always written your own songs that's how i've always written i mean i'm sure my writing has improved greatly and evolved and gotten a lot less like angsty as or at least if it's angsty, it's like self-aware and at least somewhat poetic or represented. Very, I don't know. It is. I, it, it's, it's very self It's always cringy going back and looking at stuff you wrote when you were like 18 uh-huh. or whatever. But um, uh, yeah, but I mean, I always wrote for myself first and foremost, you know, like the majority of songs I've written, no one will ever hear. They were just for me to process stuff. And I, I really do believe that that is valuable um regardless of whether people hear stuff although ultimately like it was really important to me to be in a band um to have that like two-way communication you know Mm -hmm. to share these experiences and um like hear people relate and hear their stories so yeah it is open book in a way but i do consider myself a a private person so i pick you know what i put in the songs what i what i want to put out there what i feel comfortable um sort of communicating which i think is why uh, a lot of the songs you'll hear on these two records are kind of like personal growth focused, you know, they're like wider themes that I think other people can relate mm-hmm. to. Um, and I'm kind of moving away. There's like more songs on currents that are about like specific people or like, you know, 
people I was angry at that I'm not friends with anymore. Yeah. Like it gets old playing those songs. Like we, we didn't like playing those songs anymore after a while. Cause it's like, okay, I'm over mm-hmm. that now. I don't need to keep digging that up forever. It feels better to play a song over and over for a long period of years that has like a positive message or like something that other people really resonate with and can like get something from in terms of experiences that they've been through, like in their lives more generally. That's the stuff that like we keep coming back to. Yeah, and I feel like especially, you know, a song like Rattenberg where you're you're holding on to this for not only like the amount of time that it takes to write a song and then go record it, but you spend all this time like waiting to put a band together. That's <laughs> I wrote that song in like 2004. <laughs> that was that was my oldest one. Um and yeah, you know, that was why it was weird, right? Putting out an album that was, like, really just the culmination of, like, my hopes and dreams for so long to, like, have my own band together and actually get to the point where we had our stuff together and put out our record. Like, it just took me a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes what it takes, but, like, it was just so good to get that out and then, like, have the luck pretty shortly after we put out the first record to, like, lock in with our current lineup and with uh, Mikey Erg on drums and Nicole Nussbaum on... Uh, on bass and they both sing and like I guess they both started playing with us and then after a few months we were like okay like are you guys like in in you want to just make a record write stuff so you're not just playing these songs that we wrote like forever ago and they're like yeah we're down um so yeah that's like all I ever wanted so it's uh it's pretty rad um you did a really nice piece for talk house where you talked about comparing yourself to MGMT and I I found that to be so affecting and just like the like there's late bloomer energy in there but there's also like so much patience and i guess i put a lot of that into currents and hearing that you know radenberg was around since 2004 it's just such a cool journey that you went on like finally making it did you feel like it sounds in, it sounds like you're enthused. Was it all positive or was there a little bit of like, I don't know, anytime I finally finish something that I've been working on for a long time, there's a little bit like, oh, wow, nothing's different. I mean, it was just such a big goal of mine to put a record out and like ideally put it out on vinyl and have that physical copy and be on a label and the fact that that happened, I was super stoked. Um, although, of course, I think with any release, you know, you put it out and you're like, oh, the whole world didn't listen to my record today and get into this? Mm-hmm. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> what do we do now? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that if you're used to just like chugging along for years and years, like you appreciate the little wins because you can't really expect anything else. So and it's like a big win to put out a record. So we were really stoked and really grateful for that. But of course, like, if we could have had it happen faster or been easier, yeah, we probably would have picked that. But in retrospect, like the path you get is the path that you get. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it wouldn't have turned out the way it was if it didn't turn out that happened the way that it did, you know, um, or take like the time that it took. So, you know, I think I have a lot of acceptance around that. Yeah. And and then Anchorless and NAF put that out together. How did, yeah. how did they get involved? Uh, Anchorless was another contact through the Gethard show, I believe, because um, Chumped had been on. Yeah. 
uh, way back. So we actually had a lot of record label contacts. So we were fortunate that when we emailed labels, they actually wrote back to us. However, most of them were like, we're full, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that was like one of the last ones. Um, not last like because of priority, but last because like I don't know, I don't. We didn't know that he would want to work with us because no one had really heard of us, yeah. and they had all these. He had bands that we really admired, um, and he was like, "Yeah, I'll put this out, but I'm like really busy with my day job and kind of winding down the label, so I need to find a co, like a label to uh, like co-release it with." Uh-huh. Um, so that and he actually uh, showed it to AF um, and like texted us one day and was like yeah they're down and we're like what anti-flags like what how oh yeah cool that's like way more than we ever thought was going to happen um and then and yeah like we're lucky to still be working with af for uh for this record and um yeah we love those guys and have just met really great folks who were on that label you know we've toured with um homeless gospel choir and mike frazier played with um Spanish love songs Mm -hmm. and yeah it's just it's just crazy how random stuff is you know like yeah just the connections uh, and how how long how many years it takes to make those connections right totally Um, yeah um I gotta give a shout out to your music videos uh find me for the waltz and the nevers uh Drew Kaufman and then Jess Lane did vocations those are Three very, very good and fun music videos. Are those two comedy people? Yes. Yeah. yeah. They're brilliant directors, awesome comedy people. Um, Yeah. I love music videos. That was just one of those things that I was always just like so stoked on the idea of doing. I was like, if I get to this point and I'm putting out music, like I have to have great videos Um, because there's nothing better. Mm -hmm. I, I love a good music video. Um, and it's just so fun. And I was doing comedy at the time, too. And it was just a fun way to to bring the two together to um, take a song that was written from a serious place and then just make something that's like really silly and joyful at the same time. Yeah. Were you doing stand up? Were you doing improv? I was doing improv mostly. Where were you doing? Were you doing UCB? Uh, through UCB. That's cool. That like the whole Gethard, yeah. It was like pretty early on in in the Gethard show, uh, public access run. You know, I started going to all the improv shows, and I kind of have a tendency where like if I get into something, like I I want to know how it works. I want to be a part of it. Uh-huh. So I I started taking UCB classes in like 2013 and got like very sucked in. It's it's really it's weird. Yeah. Don't need to go too far into it, but I got sucked in and then I, and then I got myself out and I, I don't do comedy anymore, but, um, but I love working with comedy folks and I, I still like those moments where you can like bring music and comedy together for sure. Um, Drew's fucking website. I've had sex twice. It's the fucking funniest thing I've ever heard. I think it redirects. I think the official one is like, or I don't know. He has a couple URLs. One is Drew is already, I guess, but I know that that also was one of them. Drew is hilarious. Um, so, yeah, Mikey and and Nicole was that? Um, I mean, you know, Mikey through the LLC. How do you know Nicole? Uh, we needed a bass player for our uh, our record release tour for Currents back in 2017, and. Uh, it was like through, I think the Fest Friends 
uh, uh-huh. Facebook group we posted and a mutual friend was like, Nicole, because she had moved here from Boston not too long before that. And that's what you need. You need like a fresh recruit yeah. who hasn't joined all the bands yet because <laughs> she's incredible and I'm sure could have quickly joined many bands and then been unavailable. So um, we got very lucky with that timing. She came on that tour. Uh, she was down to keep playing and, um, you know, Mikey had played with us, I think, before that. He'd played some shows with us, um, but wasn't available for that tour. But then we all kind of came together and, like, solidified, which was awesome because we love them both so much. And and everyone sings. That was also always my dream. Like, yeah. there's nothing better for me than being at a show where, like, every single person in the band has a mic and is just, like, going for it. It adds so much. So to be able to... Um, to have to realize that you know and have all the group sing-alongs and three-part harmonies and stuff and parts where different people are singing different lines like to be able to bring that stuff in on vocations was definitely um like a big goal for me and something we were able to do and the writing process i'm sure changed a lot as opposed to um you know you having everything now it's you have a lot of a lot of hands in there right yeah i mean i think it kind of was a natural progression I think because I mean I would bring in the song and I think at first Heidi and I were still writing together first where she would add her harmonies and she would uh you know add the cello part and then we bring it to the band but by the time we finished writing that record I was just bringing the song to the whole band at once mm-hmm. um and that kind of gave some more leeway in terms of what we led with because you know if you like always start with the cello then maybe you're always going to have a cello lead at the beginning but then there were a couple songs that really called for like a bass intro um so it was just important to have everyone on board and kind of have those conversations about where to put that focus and then um just have it happen more naturally of what went where and i like what you said about sort of taking a little bit more putting a little bit more into your songs being uh i guess more for the people as opposed to like the shit that you've been carrying for a long time right like there's there's definitely something that's very tangible and just the like i love narrator i love the you know that song i think speaks so specifically to uh i don't know everybody in the crowd and also anybody who's not good message thank you yeah that's a song i was trying to write for a really long time like like many many years ago i had a song called all my idols there's a line in the song that was like i knew that all my idols were something i'd never be because i would just look up on stage and there were no women Mm -hmm. um and i had written a song way back that was a lot more kind of negative and angsty about it because i was really feeling it like it was i was not in a band at that time but it was just really just painful to feel like I want to do this thing, but I don't see myself up there and I don't know if I can ever be this thing that I want to be if mm-hmm. like if no one else like me is. Um, and it had lines like, like uh, never the singer, always the song. Yeah. Uh, you know, just that like I hear so many songs about women that are usually negative and I sing along and like, that feels bad. <laughs> and uh, so to write it, to kind of like return to that song and that theme all this time later with like, you know, my evolved sort of experience around it was 
uh, it was really cool. And especially to have like two other women in the band and everyone mm. singing along on that. Um, I was really, really excited to be able to put that on the record. Um, now you finished this pretty quick, right? You, I don't know what's quick. <laughs> Everything is so long ago now. I don't know. I think we like wrote it in 2018. We recorded it in 2019. It took like a, a while. Like the mixing and mastering just kind of got dragged out longer than, than some records do. Mm-hmm. And then um, it, we were getting ready to put it out sort of around like a, shortly after when the pandemic ended up starting. Yeah. So then we sat on it for a whole other year. Um, now, I, I think... Obviously, there's things that have happened in the past year that are that are larger than not being able to put a record out, but that fucking sucks. I mean, it definitely was one of the things that just kind of hung over us for the entire year. Obviously, yes, there were things that were, were worse, but when you're a musician and that's like one of the things that you, the main thing that you love to do, that's your main creative outlet and your main social outlet, and that's taken away and you don't even have that to get through everything else that's going on. Um, yeah, I, I know that it was hard for, for a lot of us. Um, what about, you know, did you feel like finally got this thing going? Um, and now you got to put the brakes on it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we had, I mean, it's, it's sort of weird to use the word momentum because you can't ever really say whether a band has momentum because you can't guarantee that one fortunate thing that happens to you is going to lead to another fortunate thing. But we had you know, shortly before that, done a string of shows with people that we really admire. We had played with, um, with Jonah Matranga of Far and One Line Drawing. Mm. We had played with, uh, The Hold Steady. Yeah. That was life-changing, mind-blowing to get to play with The Hold Steady in Boston. And we played with Anti-Flag, um, in Halloween 2019. And those shows were all just, like, so awesome and just really exciting. And, um... Yeah, it did feel like, okay, cool, we played all these awesome shows, like, more people are finding out about us, we're gonna put out this record, and then, uh, everything goes away, so, any sense of momentum that any band felt, uh, just evaporated, and that's really a wild thing to happen. Yeah. Were you, were you keeping busy? Have you been writing? Have you been able to practice? Uh, barely. I, I find it really hard to play in my house um i had you know a really good schedule when i was writing vocations of going to the practice space every weekend and writing and um you know i the whole band we haven't seen each other the whole year uh i played a couple of uh, acoustic live streams with heidi um but you know without the band and without the practice space and without the record being out and with the world being terrible those are all things that contributed to it being just extremely hard um, to write music. I wrote, I think, four songs in 2020 yeah. in my house, which is like four more than I probably would have thought that I was going to. And I like them, but it's just, it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to know even if, if they have a place on a record, even though I think they're good. Cause some of them still are kind of just like processing different things that happened to me. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Now the vocations is finally out and we're still not practicing again yet, but I get to kind of reevaluate what comes next you know is it me going back to the practice space by myself and trying to start writing again or i don't i don't know what that looks like yet yeah i i really love the stuff that you put together for vocations like metronome heart is 
that song fucking hit me so good. I um, share very much that type of nervousness, and it's good. It's good. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was a fun song to do with the band. You know, it's like it's fast. It's short. It's like I wrote this lyric about drums, and then end up having like a super incredible drum part and mm-hmm. uh yeah we we didn't listen to these songs for a long time after we finished the record and we, we did a listening party um the other day on the release day and uh it was fun listening to them again and when i got to the end of that song i was like man i want to mosh i like, want to get up and mosh to this <laughs> it's like the beat is so good oh i like your records so much they make me feel good i'm glad I, I want that, you know, like I want to play songs that make people feel good, which wouldn't have been my intention, you know, many years ago when I was just having a really hard time and trying to process stuff and was kind of like, if I write this thing about this thing that's really hard and I sing it, will someone else tell me that it's really hard for them too? And then I'll feel better, you know, which is always, I think, sort of present, but to be able to put positivity out there and connect to people, not through like like empty positivity it's always like positivity through like challenges and learning but to connect on that level I think is really powerful and to me even more powerful than like you know I find I'm really like mad about this thing or I feel really angsty about this thing and me too um or at least like you know when I came up through shows the stuff we were talking about earlier like with the narrator like people Mm -hmm. uh you know, guys singing songs about their ex-girlfriends that were angry and we were all kind of in this like shared catharsis and I felt like I was a part of something, but like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I was really a part of it. Like I had a feeling, like it was a cool feeling to be there and be with everyone in the sweaty pit and like feeling this catharsis, but it wasn't like I was actually relating to the guy on stage. Um, I hadn't been through what he had been through. So, to, Also, well, it sounds like what he's been through might be kind of fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to go from that being like my experience to like putting out stuff that people have like a positive connection to or say makes them feel good. Like I just love that. And I feel like that is a really um, amazing thing to be able to do and something that I'd really like to continue to be able to do. And that I think that does continue to shape like what I would decide to put on a record. You know, like if I write something that's just kind of feels really dark and I'm like processing something then I don't know whether that's whether I want that to be an early riser song like maybe there's a place for it but I'm like aware sort of of what we're doing and what I want to be doing with it and what I want to be putting out there as part of the band so I don't yeah I don't know what that's gonna look like in the next phase but we will see oh well I I hope that you get to mosh or you get to fucking like (laughs) uh guide the pit soon enough (laughs) yeah I hope so too people still aren't really talking about you know what that might look like I mean I'm I'm glad that we're in a community of people who have really prioritized safety over the thing that's most important to many of us which is music Um, and I appreciate that you know and I I respect that and I'm, I'm glad about it but yeah it is it is weird like I don't know I I stumbled upon an outdoor punk show the other weekend. I was hanging out with a friend over by where our old practice space is in East Williamsburg. It's kind mm-hmm. of an industrial area. And there were some bands playing on the street. 
and it was actually this band that we had booked on the Gethard show called Rebelmatic, and oh, I. Wow. We were like down the street, so I didn't know what band was playing. But then at their shows, they had people chant their names. So people started chanting Rebelmatic. And I was like, oh my God, a band that I know is actually playing like down the street from where I am live. It's very strange um, because I have not experienced live music in a year. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I haven't really heard people talking about trying to get outdoor stuff going or anything yet. So um, I'm not going to push it. But whenever it's time, I'm, I'll be very happy. Oh, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was so fun. Cool. All right, let's check out Early Riser online. Early Riser. That's three R's at the end of Riser. Riot Girl style. Earlyriser.bandcamp.com. BettyAtPod.com. BettyAtPodcast.bandcamp.com. Pledge to the show on Patreon. Patreon.com slash BettyAtPodcast. We will see you next week. Thank you, friends. <laughs>